Good morning. It is a joy to be with all of you, and um, especially for those who are able to be present with us. Uh, we're grateful for you here. And then beyond that, for you who are online, uh, for the viewers, we're grateful that you're here as well. And for the space that we are able to look at and share this time together, um, it's something that we don't take for granted. It's something that we do cherish, your participation and your life, your livelihood in this community. In many ways, that's one thing we're going to be doing today. We're going to be talking about community, but it's through the lens of the series we're in. The series we're in is called One Another, and the series invites us to look at all of the different one, one another's that happen in the New Testament. So in the New Testament, there's over 50 one another commands, right? There's a command, one another. And so, so far we've looked at love one another. We've looked at serve one another, bear one another's burdens. These are things we've looked at. That phrase one another shows up a hundred times in the New Testament. So it's a very common phrase that expresses itself. And today we're going to look at one that maybe we haven't heard from as much, and that's going to be confess your sins to one another. But before we do that, I, I want to start with a, uh, a little thought experiment. And so in 370 BCE, Theophrastus, he's a philosopher, a scientist, he uh, begins talking about, and he gains prominence, and one of his famous lines is, time is the most valuable thing that humanity can spend. Right? Time is the most valuable thing that humanity can spend. He's famous, or he becomes famous, because he is the student and the successor to Aristotle. So he comes to prominence in his world, right? And he's sharing these ideas. Like, time is the most valuable thing that humanity can spend. Now, of course, he's not the first person to say something like this, right? Uh, we take that language and we, we internalize it now in our world. So think about these sayings, right? Time is money. We've heard that before. Where am I investing my time? We just heard Jack say, budget out an hour, right? We, we have these financial metaphors, these economic metaphors that we use to talk about time. And there's nothing wrong with that. That exists is something worth my time. That's the metaphor we can use. But the question is, is that the only metaphor we can use to talk about time? Is that the only one? Like, if we think about time, time as money, oftentimes our experience of time and our use of it all comes to form us to accrue it, to save it, to learn when to spend it, like, that's the metaphor that forms how we actually engage time itself. But now, think about if the metaphor changes. What if we think, and we've heard this, time is a gift? Right? Just change the metaphor. How does that then change how you engage time itself? Well, if it's a gift, it's something to be enjoyed, right? Time is something to be shared. It's something to be opened up. If time is a gift, it changes how we experience the world. And so the metaphors we use are important because, again, they guide the ways that we can make meaning of the world. 
And so I start with this analogy, and I start with this observation, because in our passage today, one of the things that stands out in our passage today is that the metaphors we use to think about this passage oftentimes guide a particular reading and expression of the Christian faith. We're, gonna, we're about to read the passage, but as you go through it, I want us to be conscious of the metaphors that are forming how we hear it. And then we say this often, as we read the text, we want the text to read us. We want to be read by the text in a way to say, God, if there's another way to imagine how you speak to us, speak, and may we hear. So join me for a word of prayer before we read, and then we'll dive into the text. Holy God, we are grateful for the gift of this day. We're grateful for this time to pause in our week, to gather, to share sacred space with each other, and to encounter you in this community. We pray that this spoken word would be faithful to your written word, and that it would lead us to the living word, Jesus Christ our Lord. We pray this with Christ, by the power of the Spirit. And everyone said, Amen. So our passage today is from James 5, verses 14 through 16. James 5, 14 through 16. We're reading from the NIV version, and it reads as such. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. From our passage today, again, we're looking at that call to confess your sins to one another, which I know can feel a little exposing. Um, typically, in my experience, we don't talk about this very much. We might talk about the concept of sin or sin itself, normally in the abstract. We'll, we'll do that. Or we'll talk about sin paired with forgiveness. That's a common thread. But sin and confession, at least in this tradition, uh, there are liturgical traditions that will practice the act of confession every week. Um, but in, in the expression of Christianity that we are experiencing now, and in the one that formed me, confession didn't really exist as a thing. We, we didn't go there. Right? That's kind of the, the gray area. Right? We just avoid that. So, I think one of the reasons we avoid talking about confession is because of how vulnerable it is. Right? Like, it is vulnerable. It requires us to open ourselves up to others. And knowing this, knowing all the ways that I can think of um, how I've heard confession spoken of in church context, I do want to pause and recognize there are a variety of Christian expressions and traditions represented in the room, represented in the hearing of this. And if confession has ever been used as a way to manipulate, right, if it's ever been used as a way to, um, to coerce, right, to, to bring about a sense of shame, as a pastor, may I 
confess to you. That is not the way confession is meant to be uh, experienced, and it's not the goal of confession. And so let me confess on behalf of churches and pastors who have and who may have done that. If that is your experience, we're sorry. And we're sorry because it means so much. It's a misreading and a misusing of what this gift is meant to do for us. And so hear that, and may this word offer space to revisit something and open it in a new way. When we confess our sins, I want you to take a step back for a moment and consider what it is calling us towards. What is calling you towards? Confess your sins. What does this mean? If you weren't familiar with religious language, if this was the first time you'd ever heard the words, confess your sins, what does that mean? I mean, think about that. The first word, confess. Well, that seems pretty obvious. Confess is to acknowledge or state something, right? To admit something. It's maybe to divulge or open yourself up, like to share something. That's what it means to confess, maybe disclose. And so it's making a statement that authentically acknowledges the truth. That's what the act of confessing is. You confess something. And this is pretty easy, right? Confess, check, that one's in the bag. We're good to go. The second word is your. Confess your sins to one another. And this one seems pretty straightforward too, right? It's talking about something that is attributed to me. So if I asked Rob, Rob, where's your jacket? He's not going to point to John's jacket. He's going to say, that's my jacket, the one he's wearing. It's something that belongs to him. It's attributed to him. There's an ownership present there. Your seems straightforward. Well, as with most times when you see you in the Bible, we, we highlight this often enough, but it's worth highlighting again because it changes how we might read the passage. We would do well to recognize that this is better represented as y'all, that you there as a y'all. Right, we highlight this again fairly regularly, but all through this passage, the verbs, the objects, all the personal pronouns, they're all second-person plural. That means it's referring not to you individually, but you as a collective, all of you. It changes everything, right? We, we highlight this, but it's addressing you as a community. And remember, the very first verse in James, James 1, James 1, 1 is... That it's a letter written to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, right? A letter written to the 12 tribes in the diaspora. That might be the word you see. What that means is it's talking to people who are scattered outside of Israel, Jewish people scattered outside of Israel, and they're trying to discern, how do I practice this faith well? Like when I don't have my people around me, when I don't have my customs around me, when I can't do the things that I'm used to doing, how do I worship? And that's what James is writing towards. He's writing towards a group of people who have been scattered, who don't know how to practice their faith, who are trying to do that faithfully, but they're struggling. And James is writing to all of them. And he's saying, you as a community, like wherever you find yourself, you might not be living in proximity directly to someone who would be your neighbor in the sense of sharing nationality and kinship. But 
if you claim Christ, you are a community. So confess your sins to each other. And do that together. Confess y'all's sins to one another. Again, this is a world of difference because there is a world of difference between being commanded to confess your sin and y'all's sins. When we think about sin individually, we are formed to practice a form of confession that is incomplete, right? It's not wrong, it's just incomplete. In fact, when it's done in this way, when it's individualistic, it misses the end goal of confession itself. Like we miss what confession is meant to form within us. Because our instinct when it comes to confession is typically an individualistic and personal thing. Right? Like, I'll take care of mine, you take care of yours. We might not ever even tell each other what that looks like. And heaven forbid, if I get blamed for something I didn't do, like, that, that's not good, so I don't want to do that. Like, individual sins, let's keep it that way. Do I really need to confess if I haven't done anything wrong? Like, this might be how we imagine confession in this passage. But catch this, the reason that James calls for the religious community to confess their sins to one another is because the ability to confess within a community says more about the character of that community than it does the one who is confessing. Let me say that again. The ability to confess within a community of faith says more about the character of the community than it does about the one who is confessing. Remember, the diaspora. James is writing to people scattered who are trying to figure out, how do I live out my faith faithfully? Like, what does that look like when the temple's gone? I don't have these structures around that normally would form me towards faithfulness. How do I do this? So this is an identity marker for the community. If you are truly given up to God, your community will hear confession and engage it in a way that opens up each other to encounter God. So confession isn't just for me. It's not just me and my conscience. It is about a confession for the character of a community. Can the community handle the worst divulging confession that someone might bring? What is the character of our community? Again, this is what confession is doing. And so James wants us to confess our sins to one another and to pray for one another because the way that a community responds to the act of confessing is the confession that tells us what a community really believes. Growing up in the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada, uh, there were certain things that were just part of our spirituality. Right? We, um, we didn't watch movies. We didn't smoke or curse. We didn't drink. We went to church a lot. Sunday morning, Sunday evening, midweek prayer service, probably youth or kids' church somewhere in there. So like three, four days a week, easy, every week, for your entire life. 
Um, that, 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 that's the, the nature of church, right? And that's something that you engage every week. And it's something that also centers your life around, uh, or that you center your life around. It, it, it's that meaningful for you. And so that's my experience in church. Um, I don't know when the first time I went to church was. I think I might have been born in the church itself. And so, like, there's a big experience there. And at our church, when my dad was the chair of the board, I remember a time when he was talking about an emergency elders meeting that was called. Big deal. All the elders come in, all the pastoral staff, they come in, and there's a big crisis. And the crisis is this. This was a pretty large church. And at the side entrance of the church, this was probably in the 90s, um, there were people who were smoking outside of the side door, which is like a huge no-no because in this meeting, here's what's happening. They're quoting the idea of like, this is holy ground. They can't be doing that here. Uh, Jesus came and he cleansed the temple of all sin. Now we're letting this sin come to the side door. Like, what's happening here? And so there's this long meeting that happens about emergency, crisis. We got to figure this out. And towards the end of the meeting, I don't remember how long it was. I remember I was waiting for my dad to finish the meeting, so that's why this is so visceral. The, the pastor asks him and says, Stephen, you, you've been quiet. Um, what do you have to say on this? And my dad, um, if you met him, he has this quiet way about him, but it's like he says very short words that are just really sharp, like they're just loaded. And so he says, well, I'm just glad that God continues to bring sinners to our church. And he just stops. That's it. Mic drop. Like, the meeting ends, and they say, um, oh, yeah. Like, what, what are we doing? Why are we trying to keep people away from our church itself? What they ended up doing was installing outdoor ashtrays in that space. I think there was still a disgruntled nature, like, to the idea. But still, the, the actual lived experience was such that this question, this emergency we had, wasn't really an emergency. Right? Because in that moment, when my dad spoke, what he keyed in on is exactly what James is actually trying to key in on and say here. How a community responds to the act of confessing, how the community responds to something present within it, is a confession that tells us what that community really believes. Do we really believe? that the gospel can free us from sin and shame? Do we, do we believe that? Can we really trust that God's church embodies the love of Christ? We find out the answers to these kind of questions when we assess how a community responds to the act of confessing. And so that leads us to the last word today. Confess y'all's sins. We started this morning by looking at the metaphors, and we started because looking at those metaphors gives us reference to see the ways that we have metaphors for sin. In the global expression of Christianity, there's a split between the Western church and the Eastern church. And so Western Christianity refers to Christianity that's framed in Latin, and then Eastern Christianity refers to Christianity that was framed in Greek. 
So you have these two big splits, right? And you have the Roman Catholic Church, you have the Greek Orthodox Church, and then the church that we are a part of now fits somewhere in between, closer to this side, right? Because we come from an expression of Christianity that's pushing back, that's Protestant, pushing back on the Roman Catholic tradition, but it's still trying to express itself on the West, Right, so Western and Eastern church, big split in how Christianity is envisioned all over the world. We always want to recognize we practice a global faith. Right? And, and the faith we practice goes beyond us. There's a history there that goes beyond us. And so with that history comes also different ways of articulating the faith. For most of us, we've been formed by Western visions of Christianity, which means that the religious language and concepts we use express themselves here in the West. So for Western Christians, the dominant metaphor that we've used to talk about sin, that's the word we're looking at, we've talked about sin as a breach of law. That's the metaphor. Think about it, right? Like, we focus on guilt, clearing the name, right? Maybe the word perpetuation, right? Uh, satisfying the wrath of God. We, we use that metaphor, which is then telling us that when we experience God's love, we experience pardon and we experience forgiveness. Right? That metaphor here is a judicial metaphor. Um, in theology, sometimes they refer to it as the forensic metaphor. Right? Like if you have crime scene and investigation, it's looking at the law and what laws were broken. And that's the kind of way that Western Christianity typically articulates what sin is. Breach of law. Judicial metaphor. Again, this isn't inherently bad, just like talking about time as money isn't inherently bad. It's just, if that's the only way you've ever thought about it, it's incomplete. Because Eastern Christianity, on the other hand, has a very different dominant metaphor. Rather than focusing on sin as a declaration of guilt, and then forgiveness is understood as pardon, in the Eastern expression, they've tended to think of sin as a sickness. And then forgiveness is healing. Right? Sin is sickness, forgiveness is healing. And so the East uses therapeutic imagery to make sense of the Christian faith, which can help us live out the Christian faith in a completely different way, right? Here we have judicial. Here we have therapeutic. Here we have clear your name. You're guilty. Clear your name. Here we have you're sick. Get healed. Do you see how the metaphor changes your entire approach to what sin is? And if that changes, then it also changes how that shapes our lives, when we think about sin and the metaphor that gives it life in our imagination, if we imagine sin through a legal metaphor, the act of confessing becomes a way to absolve ourselves of guilt, to clear our name. But in the therapeutic metaphor, think about it this way. On this side, if sin is a sickness, then the act of confessing becomes the intake room where we share the symptoms that we have, and it allows us to meet the great physician. And then that begins our recovery. Are we catching this? This is what confessing does. This is what it does. It, it frames in us that confessing is an intake room 
It's the sharing of all the things that are going wrong, all the things that, uh, that are killing me. And I might, need, not, I might not even know all of them yet. I might confess one thing, one symptom, and I meet the doctor, and the doctor says, actually, there's something underneath that that's making that destructive for your life. Let's, let's get there. Let's cut that out. Let's heal that. Let's start the process there. The doctor never actually heals you, right? The doctor sets you on a trajectory that you start to begin to recover. And so surgery is a major correction, but there's also other things that happen. What if we think about confession like that? Change the metaphor and allow faith to grab you. When we talk about faith in that way, faith and confessing as an intake room, our ability to hold space for others, to share how they're suffering, that becomes the confession that points to what kind of community we are. Again, how we hold space for each other when we are at our sickest tells us what our community is marked by. Is our church marked by empty promises of love, false advertising? Or is our church marked by the transforming power of God in God's presence that invites us to find its source in love? This is why confessing Confession matters. It reveals who we are, and it reveals why we gather. In the last chapter of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, Life Together, he speaks directly to this. He'll talk about confession as conversion and discipleship. Right, so there's that, he, he brings both the East and the West together. He talks about that conversion side. There's a sense where my life is cleared in a certain way, but it's also discipleship. It's that ongoing practice that starts here and then moves towards something. There's a trajectory towards wholeness. And when we talk about the church being the body of Christ, these metaphors about sin as a sickness, they start to take more weight into itself, right? Confession heals parts of the body that are in need of mending. So when we reread our passage, and James starts in verse 14 by asking, is anyone sick among you? Call the elders, call the community, and have them pray for you. And when they pray for you, when they do that, if if you have any sins, forgive the sins too. The Lord will raise them up, and if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Right? The metaphor of sin as sickness, when we look at this passage, take it takes on a whole new meaning. The Eastern approach makes sense of some of the ways that this passage happens. Because if we don't read it that way, then what you might be tempted to do is think that I'm sick physically because I have sin. So let me address the sin, and then that will make sure that I'm healed. That's missing the way that this metaphor is meant to express itself in the text. It's talking about sin and physical healing as something you experience viscerally that is destroying your life. How might God step into that and bring about healing? And how might sharing that with a community open me up to receive God's healing in ways that forgive sins and heal my body? Right? The East and West are radically split on how you actually think about this passage. And this one... 
from my experience, doesn't do it justice. Because when you start thinking about sin transactionally as a way to get healed in my body, you're setting a trajectory that just is false. I mean, it's just not true. So, what now, Bethany? What are we supposed to do with this? You might be like, I see what you're saying. Like, I, I can make sense of these shifts. But I don't know what to tangibly do with this. Like, how does this alter my faith? Well, I think there's three things to remember when it comes to confession. And the first thing is this. Remember that how a community responds to the act of confessing is the confession that tells us what the community really believes. So that's something to note, right? Like how we respond to someone sharing and divulging the ways that sickness has been a part of their life, the ways that perhaps a legal standing has been a part of their life. Like how we respond to that says more about us than it does about the sinner. So that's the first thing to remember. The second thing is that confession can be public and it also can be private. And that happens within community. And determining which is the most appropriate is an act of discernment. And so as a general rule, general rule of thumb here, like speaking in broad generalities, but as a general rule, public confession normally accompanies public sin, and private confession accompanies private sin. This is, so to speak, like mechanics of confession how it takes place. Because there are sometimes ways that confession can take place in a church community broadly where in the intent to unload, you actually have collateral damage. And so we want to be mindful of the way that confessing, that the act of confessing takes place. General rule, public, public sin, public confession. Private sin, private confession. That doesn't mean it's just you and yourself and God. It still means confessing to one another, but how you do that is important. So that's the second thing to remember. Confession is an act of discernment. The third thing is this. When we hold space to offer, or when we hold space to others to confess, we will know if it's godly or not, depending on how the confessor is after the act of confessing. Right? We, when we hold space for others, we will know if it's godly, depending on how the person who has spoken, who has opened themselves up, uh, will know just what their, what their posture is. And so this is the key question. Are they humbled or are they humiliated? After they confess, are they humbled or are they humiliated? This is, the def- this, is the, this is the key. This is the difference between healing and hiding. Right? Confession that is humbling leads to healing. Confession that's humiliating leads to further hiding. And so you can't get to the things underlying. If you're using that physical uh, therapeutic metaphor... It's like, oh, no, I don't need to see a doctor anymore. I didn't like that experience. <laughs> I'm not going back. Um, maybe the dentist is a better fit. Um, but, yeah, we have this idea, right? If humility 
in this side, in a therapeutic way, if confessing happens, then it should lead to a humbled nature, not a humiliated nature. God never humiliates. God humbles. And healing is what God wants for us. And yet, a huge part of the Christian faith is also this. Even if we are hiding, God will come search for you. Remember that story in the garden? What do Adam and Eve do? They recognize, they come to an awareness. Oh, there's something wrong. What do they do? They hide. And God still finds them. God doesn't humiliate. God humbles. And this is where we can find ourselves as we act on confessing. We have covered a lot of ground. You know, we've talked about theology, metaphors. We've, we've gone all over the place. We centered on three key words. How we did all that with three words is a mystery, right? But like we, we, we covered a lot of things as we looked at this, this verse. And yet, for our community, as we think about ourselves and where we fit, Do you have people in this space that you can share life with? And do you have people in the space that you feel connected to, to the point where you can open yourself up? If that is true for you, then my encouragement would be to engage in the act of confessing, not for the end goal of humiliation, but for your very healing. This is important. This is hugely important. But beyond that, if you don't have people to share, we would love to do that for you and connect you to others who can do that. Because the nature of a community that gathers on a Sunday isn't just to hear a sermon, isn't just to sing songs, but it's to share a way of being, a way of living that grounds the rest of our lives. And so again, in my upbringing, church was the center of my life. And in that centering, I mean, here's, here's, a, here's how that expresses itself, right? We, so we have revival service. And when we have revival service, they always say, bring your unsaved friends. But you've just spent 50 weeks of the year saying, don't have unsaved friends. Like, don't associate with them. And so that, that overlap, that dissonance, makes it, so that we can't function in community. And the community then becomes one of inclusion-exclusion. That is not the community of God. When we follow the image of Christ, Christ invites us to be hands and feet extended, to be an embodied community in a way that speaks to the character of God that finds itself in other places. And so as the band comes up, uh, as Andrew and Jason and Austin come. It may be that as you think about God's healing, it may be that there's a hesitancy because of hurt. And this is also a key distinction that I want to highlight just as we close here. 
God, in God's interaction in our life, it may hurt. But that's because surgery hurts. Getting well hurts sometimes. But the thing we can rely on as we think about God, as we think about sharing, as we think about sharing the ways that we're sick with each other and with God, is that just like God never humiliates, God also never harms. The, the, the work of God in our lives might hurt sometimes, but again, surgery hurts. Cauterizing a wound, that hurts. But God never harms. God doesn't humiliate. The end goal of confession is not that. The end goal of confession is bringing us to each other so that we can actually live in authentic relationship. And as we live in authentic relationship, that means that the community, it's not marketing, right? It's not marketing anymore. It's marked by the Spirit of God. And it's marked by the Spirit of God in such a way that we can encounter the wounds. We can see the scars. And we can find healing and wholeness there. So if you would, join me for a word of prayer. And that's not for the act of confessing, but it's to discern how you might live and ruminate and think about this word today. Join me for prayer. And let's discern together. Holy God, you are a good God. It's something that we hold true and it's something that we hold to dearly. We trust you and we say that we give our lives to you. May our community engage your presence and embody your presence in ways that confess just how good you truly are. And as you work on our lives and as we think about the ways that we might be sick, would you bring people into our lives today that speak to and open space for us to find healing, to begin a path of healing? You are the great physician. And you open us up today to have wounds healed and to find new life. And so, Spirit, hover over us as we sing and as we confess and as we say, like the song says, I confess, Lord, we need you. Come quickly and be near to us. We pray this with Christ by the Spirit. Amen.